The Extraordinary Adventures of Arsène Lupin, Gentleman Burglar. The Seven of Hearts. I am frequently asked this question. How did you make the acquaintance of Arsène Lupin? My connection with Arsène Lupin was well known. The details that I gather concerning that mysterious man, the irrefutable facts that I present, the new evidence that I produce, the interpretation that I place on certain acts of which the public has seen only the exterior manifestations without being able to discover the secret reasons or the invisible mechanism, all establish, if not an intimacy, at least amicable relations and regular confidences. But how did I make his acquaintance? Why was I selected to be his historiographer? Why I, and not someone else? The answer is simple. Chance alone presided over my choice. My merit was not considered. It was chance that put me in his way. It was by chance that I was participant in one of his strangest and most mysterious adventures, and by chance that I was an actor in a drama of which he was the marvelous stage director, an obscure and intricate drama, bristling with such thrilling events that I feel a certain embarrassment in undertaking to describe it. The first act takes place during that memorable night of the 22nd of June, of which so much has already been said. And, for my part, I attribute the anomalous conduct of which I was guilty on that occasion to the unusual frame of mind in which I found myself on my return home. I had dined with some friends at the Cascade restaurant, and the entire evening, whilst we smoked and the orchestra played melancholy waltzes, we talked only of crimes and thefts and dark and frightful intrigues. That is always a poor overture to a night's sleep. The Saint-Martins went away in an automobile. Jean Daspry, that delightful, heedless Daspry, who six months later was killed in such a tragic manner on the frontier of Morocco, Jean Daspry and I returned on foot through the dark, warm night. When we arrived in front of the little house in which I had lived for a year at Neuilly on the Boulevard Maillot, he said to me, are you afraid? What an idea! But this house is so isolated, no neighbors, vacant lots. Really, I am not a coward, and yet, well, you are very cheering, I must say. Oh, I say that as I would say anything else. The Saint-Martins have impressed me with their stories of brigands and thieves. We shook hands and said good night. I took out my key and opened the door. Well, that is good, I murmured. Antoine has forgotten to light a candle. Then I recalled the fact that Antoine was away. I had given him a short leave of absence. Forthwith, I was disagreeably oppressed by the darkness and silence of the night. I ascended the stairs on tiptoe and reached my room as quickly as possible. Then, contrary to my usual habit, I turned the key and pushed the bolt. The light of my candle restored my courage. Yet I was careful to take my revolver from its case, a large, powerful weapon, and place it beside my bed. That precaution completed my reassurance. I laid down and, as usual, took a book from my night table to read myself to sleep. Then I received a great surprise. 
Instead of the paper knife with which I had marked my place on the proceeding, I found an envelope closed with five seals of red wax. I seized it eagerly. It was addressed to me and marked urgent. A letter. A letter addressed to me. Who could have put it in that place? Nervously, I tore open the envelope and read, From the moment you open this letter, whatever happens, whatever you may hear, do not move, do not utter one cry. Otherwise, you are doomed. I am not a coward, and, quite as well as another, I can face real danger or smile at the visionary perils of imagination. But let me repeat, I was in an anomalous condition of mind, with my nerves set on edge by the events of the evening. Besides, was there not, in my present situation, something startling and mysterious, calculated to disturb the most courageous spirit? My feverish fingers clutched the sheet of paper, and I read and reread those threatening words, Do not move, do not utter one cry, otherwise you are doomed. Nonsense, I thought. It is a joke, the work of some cheerful idiot. I was about to laugh, a good, loud laugh. Who prevented me? What haunting fear compressed my throat? At least I would blow out the candle. No, I could not do it. Do not move, or you are doomed, were the words he had written. These auto-suggestions are frequently more imperious than the most positive realities, but why should I struggle against them? I had simply to close my eyes. I did so. At that moment, I heard a slight noise, followed by crackling sounds, proceeding from a large room used by me as a library. A small room or antechamber was situated between the library and my bedchamber. The approach of an actual danger greatly excited me, and I felt a desire to get up, seize my revolver, and rush into the library. I did not rise. I saw one of the curtains of the left window move. There was no doubt about it. The curtain had moved. It was still moving. And I saw, oh, I saw quite distinctly, in the narrow space between the curtains and the window, a human form, a bulky mass that prevented the curtains from hanging straight. And it is equally certain that the man saw me through the large meshes of the curtain. Then I understood the situation. His mission was to guard me while the others carried away their booty. Should I rise and seize my revolver? Impossible. He was there. At the least movement, at the least cry, I was doomed. Then came a terrific noise that shook the house. This was followed by lighter sounds, two or three together, like those of a hammer that rebounded. At least that was the impression formed in my confused brain. These were mingled with other sounds, thus creating a veritable uproar which proved that the intruders were not only bold, but felt themselves secure from interruption. They were right. I did not move. Was it cowardice? No. Rather, weakness, a total inability to move any portion of my body, combined with discretion. For why should I struggle? Behind that man, there were ten others who would come to his assistance. Should I risk my life to save a few tapestries and bibelots? Throughout the night, my torture endured. Insufferable torture, terrible anguish. The noises had stopped, but I was in constant fear of their renewal. And the man, the man who was guarding me, weapon in hand, my fearful eyes remained cast in his direction, and my heart 
beat, and a profuse perspiration oozed from every pore of my body. Suddenly, I experienced an immense relief. A milk wagon, whose sound was familiar to me, passed along the boulevard, and at the same time I had an impression that the light of a new day was trying to steal through the closed window blinds. At last, daylight penetrated the room. Other vehicles passed along the boulevard, and all the phantoms of the night vanished. Then I put one arm out of the bed, slowly and cautiously. My eyes were fixed upon the curtain, locating the exact spot at which I must fire. I made an exact calculations of the movements I must make, then, quickly, I seized my revolver and fired. I leapt from my bed with a cry of deliverance and rushed to the window. The bullet had passed through the curtain and the window glass, but it had not touched the man, for the very good reason that there was none there. Nobody. Thus, during the entire night, I had been hypnotized by a fold of the curtain. And during that time, the malefactors, furiously, with an enthusiasm that nothing could have stopped, I turned the key, opened the door, crossed the antechamber, opened another door, and rushed into the library. But amazement stopped me on the threshold, panting, astounded, more astonished than I had been by the absence of the man. All the things that I supposed had been stolen— Furniture, books, pictures, old tapestries, everything was in its proper place. It was incredible. I could not believe my eyes. Notwithstanding that uproar, those noises of removal, I made a tour, I inspected the walls, I made a mental inventory of all the familiar objects. Nothing was missing. And, what was more disconcerting, there was no clue to the intruders, not a sign, not a chair disturbed, not the trace of a footstep. Well, well, I said to myself, pressing my hands on my bewildered head. Surely I am not crazy. I heard something. Inch by inch, I made a careful examination of the room. It was in vain. Unless I could consider this as a discovery, under a small Persian rug I found a card an ordinary playing card. It was the Seven of Hearts. It was like any other Seven of Hearts in a French playing card deck, with this slight but curious exception. The extreme point of each of the seven red spots or hearts was pierced by a hole, round and regular, as if made with the point of an awl. Nothing more. A card and a letter found in a book. But was not that sufficient to affirm that I had not been the plaything of a dream? Throughout the day I continued my searches in the library. It was a large room, much too large for the requirements of such a house, and the decoration of it attested the bizarre taste of its founder. The floor was a mosaic of multicolored stones formed into large symmetrical designs. The walls were covered with a similar mosaic, arranged in panels, Pompeian allegories, Byzantine compositions, frescoes of the Middle Ages, a Bacchus bestriding a cask, an emperor wearing a gold crown, a flowing beard, and holding a sword in his right hand. Quite high, after the style of an artist's studio, there was a large window, the only one in the room. That window being always open at night, it was probable that the men had entered through it by the aid of a ladder. But again, there was no evidence. The bottom of the ladder would have left some marks in the soft earth beneath the window, but there were none. Nor were there any traces of footsteps in any part of the yard. 
I had no idea of informing the police because the facts I had before me were so absurd and inconsistent. They would laugh at me. However, as I was then a reporter on the staff of the Gilles Blas, I wrote a lengthy account of my adventure, and it was published in the paper on the second day thereafter. The article attracted some attention, but no one took it seriously. They regarded it as a work of fiction rather than a story of real life. The Saint-Martins rallied me, but Daspry, who took an interest in such matters, came to see me, made a study of the affair, but reached no conclusion. A few mornings later, the doorbell rang, and Antoine came to inform me that a gentleman desired to see me. He would not give his name. I directed Antoine to show him up. He was a man of about forty years of age, with a very dark complexion, lively features, and whose correct dress, slightly frayed, proclaimed a taste that contrasted strangely with his rather vulgar manners. Without any preamble, he said to me, in a rough voice that confirmed my suspicion as to his social position, Monsieur, whilst at a cafe I picked up a copy of the Jill Blast and read your article. It interested me very much. Thank you. And here I am. Ah? Yes, to talk to you. Are all the facts related by you quite correct? Absolutely so. Well, in that case, I can perhaps give you some information. Very well. Proceed. No, uh, not yet. First, I must make sure that the facts are exactly as you have related them. I have given you my word. What further proof do you want? I must remain alone in this room. I do not understand, I said with surprise. It's an idea that occurred to me when reading your article. Certain details established an extraordinary coincidence with another case that came under my notice. If I'm mistaken, I shall say nothing more. And the only means of ascertaining the truth is by remaining in this room alone. What was at the bottom of this proposition? Later, I recalled that the man was exceedingly nervous, but at the same time, although somewhat astonished, I found nothing particularly abnormal about the man or the request that he had made. And moreover, my curiosity was aroused, so I replied, Very well. How much time do you require? Oh, three minutes, not longer. Three minutes from now, I will rejoin you. I left the room and went downstairs. I took out my watch. One minute passed. Two minutes. Why did I feel so depressed? Why did those moments seem so solemn and weird? Two minutes and a half. Two minutes and three quarters. Then I heard a pistol shot. I bounded up the stairs and entered the room. A cry of horror escaped me. In the middle of the room, the man was lying on his left side, motionless. Blood was flowing from a wound in his forehead. Near his hand was a revolver, still smoking. But in addition to this frightful spectacle, my attention was attracted by another object. At two feet from the body, upon the floor, I saw a playing card. It was the Seven of Hearts. I picked it up. The lower extremity of each of the seven spots was pierced with a small, round hole. 